Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come this morning. We have a great desire to meet with you, to experience your presence. Let your spirit and your word work together in our lives to help us to be more like Jesus. Today, as we seek to study and find out what you want us to know, Father, help us to have surrendered hearts and help us, Father, to have ears to hear. Let your Holy Spirit come and let him anoint me that I would have clarity of thought and clarity of speech to speak the word that you've given me. Open our hearts and minds to receive it. Bring change into our lives. Help us, Father, to go out and be lights that shine brightly for Jesus everywhere that we go. We ask all of this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Now, if any of the myths that I talk about in this series is going to anger someone, it will be this one. And all I ask is that you hear me out before you shut me down. And if you're still mad at the end of the message, I want you to ask yourself if you're mad because what I said contradicted Scripture or if you're mad because your pride has been wounded. You know, the sad fact is many in the evangelical church today have a performance-based religion. Now, no one would ever say that we have a performance-based religion, but it's seen at various times in our life, most especially when there are hard times that come. And here's how a performance-based religion works. We follow a list of do's and don'ts that we have been given or we have developed on our own. We come to church, we read our Bibles, we pray, we tithe. We don't drink alcohol, we don't cuss, we don't go to R-rated movies, we don't have sex outside of marriage. And with this, we have in our minds that Christianity is all about the things that you do and the things that you don't do. And regardless of how we might define this, this is a performance-based religion. Now, there are all kinds of problems with a performance-based religion. One is that it's not gospel-centered Christianity. Gospel-centered Christianity is far more about what Jesus has done than what we should do. Another is that Paul tells the Colossians that this kind of religion, it looks good, but it doesn't do anything to help conquer the sinful desires that we have within us, and it doesn't actually change us in any noticeable way. And for the most part, though, people can plug right along with a performance-based religion until something comes along and exposes the massive weakness of this kind of religion. And here's what happens. We work hard at doing our dues. We fight hard at not doing our don'ts. And this allows us a, a measure of success and conformity to our list. And we feel successful in the Christian life. And this goes along fine until something bad happens. A spouse leaves us. Our finances go in the toilet. A test results come back bad. A loved one dies. A child begins to make bad decisions or something else bad begins to happen in our lives. And at this point in time, we begin to say things like, I don't deserve this. I was good. God, I can't believe you would let this happen to me after all that I've done for you. We then begin to list all of the do's that we've done and all of the don'ts that we have not done. And we do this believing that, that the do's we've done and the don'ts we've not done, they give us a measure of merit before God. And what we would probably not say, but imply with this line of thought is that by doing our do's or not doing our don'ts, we have put God in our debt that God, in fact, owes us. But is that true? And that's the myth we're going to examine today. The myth, God owes me. Is it true that we can put God in our debt so that he in some way and at some point owes us. Well, to examine this myth, let's consider the person 
Job. You remember Job. He lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless and he was upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. To put it in the context of this message, Job did his dues. And Job resisted his don'ts. This is in a later verse that will tell us that God's testimony about Job is exactly the same. Job was a good man. He did all of his dues and he didn't do all of his don'ts. But Job still had a couple of really bad days. On one of Job's really bad days, there were a series of tragedies that happened. And by the end of the tragedies, what had happened was he had lost all of his wealth and all of his children were dead. On another day that wasn't that much longer, Job had another bad day and he was struck with some mysterious illness that left him with runny, painful boils from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. Now, surely, if anyone could say that God owed them, it would be Job who was blameless and upright, who feared God and shunned evil. Surely Job would say, God, you owe me. But how did Job respond to these situations? Well, before we get to how Job responded, we kind of have to see what his wife said. His wife said, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, Job, in a lot of ways, Job's wife, I think you could say she had a performance-based religion. In her mind, her question is this, Job, you did your dues. And Job, you didn't do your don'ts. Why are you still trying to be faithful to the Lord? Why not? Why not just abandon all of that and die? Now, Job's response to her is very telling about who Job was and what Job was like. Job's response first is that she's responding as though someone who does not know the Lord. You speak as a foolish woman speaks. Right? In the Old Testament especially, a fool wasn't just someone who did things without thinking. A fool was someone who did not know the Lord. Fool is said in his heart, there is no God. So by asking this question and acting this way, she's acting like someone who really does not know the Lord. But notice his next response. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not adversity? Now that is a big question. His question is one that we all need to wrestle with. <clears throat> Shall we only worship God when good things happen in our life. Is God only worthy of our worship when good things are happening in our lives? Or is God inherently worthy of our worship regardless of anything else that could come? Do we worship God for the good things He gives us and then when bad things happen we leave Him? Or do we worship God regardless of things that come into our life, good or bad? It's a question we'll hit on later. But another question that Job is asking with this is a question of basically who is the boss? Who in our relationship with God is the master? And who in our relationship with God is the servant? And we all know the right answer. The right answer is God is the boss and we are the servant. But, but is that really what we believe? And is that belief backed up by the way that we live our lives? 
Right? Because if God is the boss, then whatever He sends or allows in our life shouldn't change how we act. It shouldn't change how we live for Him or how we serve Him. But if God serves us, if we are the boss, then God has a job to do for us. And if we think we are the boss, then here's the job God has. God's job is to make my life easy. God's job is to give me good things and prevent bad things from happening in my life. And as long as I'm a good boss and do my do's and don't do my don'ts, then God is supposed to, to prevent any bad thing from happening. He's like a linebacker that tackles the bad things before they get to my life. And if bad things happen, then God has failed me. God hasn't done His job. But that mindset, that mindset elevates us to the place of boss. And it elevates God or it lowers God to the place of servant. The reality is God is the boss and we are the servants. And as servants, there's nothing that we can do that ever puts God in our debt. At no point in time does God ever owe us. Let me show you this from a passage that it's probably one of the hardest on our pride that there possibly is. Turn to Luke chapter 17, page uh, 7, 799. Luke 17 and 7. In Luke 17 and 7, Jesus says, And which of you, having a servant, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, when he has come from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper? Gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward then you will eat and drink. So he uses something they commonly understand, that of someone who has a servant. Servant has worked in the field all day long. The servant has done his job, done what he was supposed to do out in the field. When he comes in from the field, does the master, does the one who's the owner of everything, does he call the servant in and set him down and begin to serve him his meal because he's done such a good job? Jesus says, no, that's not the way the world works. Instead, the master sets down and tells the servant, you serve me first, and once you've served me, Then you can eat. And he goes on and he says in verse 9, And does he thank the servant because he did those things that were commanded him? I think not. But after the servant has worked in the field and has served him his meal, does he then just thank him like he's done something extraordinary, exceptional? No. You know why? Because all the servant has done is what he was supposed to do. He has done his job. Nothing more and nothing less. Here's the point. Verse 10. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. So let's imagine we do all of our dues perfectly. And we don't do 
all of our don'ts. At that point, does God owe us? At that point, have we put him in our debt? Have we done something exceptional? According to Jesus, the answer is no. All we've done, all we've done is we have done our duty. Nothing more, nothing less. In fact, Jesus makes that even harder by saying that we are to say you are that we are unprofitable servants. I don't know about you, but if, if I do my do's and I don't do my don'ts, okay, I can maybe accept a servant, but, but unprofitable? Come on! At least I'm, I'm better than Nathan, right? I mean, come on, give me something here. Scott's not here, so I've got to pick on somebody. But Jesus said no. Even if we do our dues and we resist our don'ts, all we've done is our duty. And even in that moment, we are still unprofitable. Even in that moment, God doesn't owe us anything. Man, that's rough. Now, that's, that's pride busting right there. That destroys your ego. And it does raise a question, though. Why, if we do our dues and we don't do our don'ts, why are we still unprofitable? And the answer is because no matter how many dues we do or how many don'ts we resist, we never do them all perfectly. We still fall short of God's glorious standard. Right? We, we still fail to do everything. And I'll, I'll show you this in a couple of ways. First is, think of it like this. For most of us that, have a, that make our do's and our don'ts, we make up our own do's and our own don'ts. And then there are things in the Bible that it says to do that we don't do, and we have a reason why we shouldn't have to do that. That doesn't apply to me. I don't feel called. I'm not gifted in that way. That's just not my nature. We have all of these reasons why we don't have to do a do that the Bible says to do. And the same with a don't. We, we do a don't, but we have a reason why our doing the don't is okay. Right? I, that's just, I was raised this way. And my mom and dad were this way. And my grandparents were this way. And I've always been this way. And I'm 44 years old. I'm not changing now. We have a reason why the don't we do is okay. So for that reason, we're always going to be unprofitable. But beyond that, we never fully keep God's standard, right? So I'm going to spend a minute and just kind of show us this. Right? So take some time this week. We're not going to be able to look at all of these passages I've got listed, but take some time this week and read Exodus 21 through 17. That's the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments make up God's absolute standard of righteousness. And as you look at the Ten Commandments, ask yourself, have I kept these perfectly? Now, often when we talk about the Ten Commandments, I talk about keeping them from birth to death. But let's not even worry about that at this particular time. Let's just talk about from last Sunday to this Sunday. Have we kept them perfectly from last Sunday to this Sunday. And as we talk about keeping them perfectly, that think also not just of the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Right? The letter is what it explicitly says. The spirit is what the intent behind it was. Like, for instance, Jesus or the law says, you shall not murder. 
explicitly don't murder. Jesus said, but if I say unto you that if you hate somebody without cause, if you call them a fool, if you say to them, Raka, if you despise them in your heart, you've broken that commandment. So the commandment is explicitly means don't kill. But the the spirit of the law is don't don't hate people without cause. Don't get angry and blow up at people. So have you now you say, well, I've never killed anybody. I've kept that one perfectly. But have you kept from blowing up in anger this week? Have you have you been angry without cause? If if you have. You've sinned. The law says, do not commit adultery. But Jesus said, if you have lost in your heart, I say unto you, you've sinned. So not just the, the, the letter, but the intent. Have no other gods before me. Well, I didn't worship Baal. Ah, but has God been your first priority of every waking moment of your life? And if you can't say that you have kept all of the commandments, the letter and the spirit perfectly since last week, you've sinned. And regardless of any other do's you may have done or don't, you may have resisted. You're still unprofitable. Or. Jesus said that the first commandment, the most important thing to do is to love the Lord, your God, by your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength. If you perfectly loved God this week. I mean, to love God, Jesus said, if you love me, do what I say. Right? Have you perfectly loved God by your heart, soul, mind, and strength this week? If not, you've sinned. And regardless of any of the do's that you've done or the don't you've resisted, we are still unprofitable. I don't want to say you like... Get like me and be better. I'm just saying we are still unprofitable. Or even harder, maybe. Jesus said that the the great commandment has one that's like it. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, neighbor doesn't just mean our physical neighbor. And it doesn't just mean our spouse or our children. It just basically means other people. Have you loved other people this week like you love yourself? If you're a Republican, if you love Democrats this week like you love yourself, if you're a Democrat, if you love Republicans like you love yourself, if you love people of other cultures and other races and other languages, if you love the people on Facebook, if you love the people of Walmart, if you love the people that cut you off, have you loved people as much as you love yourself? If we haven't, we've fallen short and we've sinned and we are... Unprofitable. Or this one. Jesus says, do all things. Or Paul says, do all things. All things. Without complaining and arguing. All things. Not all the things you want to do. Not all the things you think are fun. All things. Without complaining and without griping. I don't even like that verse. If you want to be just real honest about the whole deal. I'm, I'm a good griper. I mean, I, I can just, I'm like Scottish in my descent. I can get down and just gripe with the best of them. But all things without griping and arguing. Have you done that perfectly this week? 
If not, you've sinned. And you remain unprofitable regardless of all the do's that you may have done or the don'ts you haven't done. And as you read through these and you think about them, and these are just three. Read them in light of Romans 6.23. Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Right, so we joked about, we laughed about not griping. Complaining. But if the Bible says don't gripe and complain, then to gripe and complain is a sin. And sin earns a wage. And that wage is death. And so our, our failure to keep the commandments, to love God, to love others, to not gripe and complain, to turn the other cheek, They earn the wage of sin, and that is death. And until we can keep everything perfectly, we always earn that wage. And we earn that wage every day of our lives. Every day we fail in one way or another. Every day we don't live up to God's perfect standard. And so every day we earn The wage of death. Regardless of any other do's that we do or don'ts that we resist. We end up unprofitable servants that at best have just done our duty. Now Romans 6.23 is great because it goes on. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. See, we, we earn... The wages of sin, but God can give us and he will give us a gift of grace and mercy. He will give us what we don't deserve. So the myth, does God owe me? Never. At no point, at no time, does God ever owe us because always throughout our lives, We fall short and we earn the wage of sin. But God doesn't always give us that. Through Jesus Christ, God gives us grace and mercy. So the God owes me is absolutely a myth. Now, how does the myth make us miserable? The myth makes us miserable when hard times come into our lives. If our lives are easy, the myth isn't that big of a deal. We, we do our do's, we don't do our don'ts, and we feel pretty okay. Any good thing that comes into our life is something we've earned. But then what happens when the bad comes? And, and the bad will come. I mean, we just live in a bad world where bad things happen to everybody. What happens when I have tried my hardest to do my do's? And I have tried my hardest to resist my don'ts, and yet something bad still happens. Man, that that becomes unbearably difficult because not only do I have the pressure and the hurt of the bad time that's coming into my life, I also have to now deal with the fact that it seems that God has failed me. God hasn't kept his end of the bargain. Or maybe, or maybe God just doesn't love me. Because I did my dues and I resisted my don'ts and yet these bad things happen. 
problems, all these doubts and all these questions and all of this despair and piles on to the hurt we're feeling in the hard time. God owes me is a myth that will absolutely make us miserable. So we need to know the truth that sets us free. The truth that sets us free is that God's every action towards me is a gift of his mercy and his grace. God's every action toward me is a gift of his mercy and his grace. The reality check that we all need from time to time is that we never, ever put God into our debt. And God never, ever owes us anything. Everything He does in us, through us, and for us is always an act of His gracious mercy toward us. And this is important. We have to understand this. Because if we don't understand this, and if we don't embrace this, the myth that God owes me, it will turn us into idolaters. If you worship God for the stuff He gives you, not for God Himself, you are an idolater. And this is true whether you worship and serve God so that He'll give you physical blessings or whether He'll keep your life free of suffering. If you worship God for the stuff He can give you, you are an idolater that worships stuff. If you worship God so that He'll keep your life free of suffering, you are an idolater that worships comfort. And either way, you're an idolater. And idolatry will never sustain you through the hardships that will surely come to your life. Devotion to God does not necessarily keep us free from suffering. We will all suffer in various ways. And if you worship God for the stuff He can give you and the things that He will do rather than for God Himself, your devotion and your faith will not sustain you through the hard times. It will crash and burn around you. You will find yourself in a crisis of faith that you will not survive. That's why you have to know God's every action toward us is a gift of His mercy and a gift of His grace. So how does this truth set us free? It sets us free in two ways. First, it frees me to enjoy my relationship with God. A performance-based religion isn't really an enjoyable religion. There's not a lot of peace and there's not a lot of joy. There's not a lot of hope. There's not a lot of anything that's really all that good. It's kind of a miserable way to live. We are forever wondering if we're good enough. Did I, did I do enough do's? Did I resist enough don'ts? Because in our honest moments, we all know there are do's we didn't do. And we all know there are don'ts we didn't resist. But did I do enough? Did my, the do's I did outweigh the, the don'ts I did? It's my good outweigh my bad. And I'm constantly trying to be good enough to earn God's favor. I'm constantly trying to be good enough to earn His blessings. I'm, I'm constantly working and striving and, and wondering and thinking if I could just be as good as them, then maybe there would be more. 
What a miserable, miserable way to live. But when I know that God's every act toward me is out of, flows out of His mercy and His grace, then I'm free to enjoy my relationship with God. But every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And it comes down from the Father of lights with, with whom there is no variation nor shadow of turning. Every good thing any of us have ever had, they are gifts from God. Gifts of His mercy and grace. Gifts that we did not, did not deserve. That we did not earn. They are just God saying, I'm good. And I want to bless you. And I find an amazing amount of freedom in knowing that those are not because I was good enough. I find an amazing amount of freedom in accepting the fact that I'll never be good enough. Because sometimes I look at my life and I think, man, I am blessed above measure. I am, I am well acquainted with my personal depravity. I am well acquainted with my sin and my failures. And as I look at my life in light of my failures, I am so glad God does not give me what I deserve. I am so glad God does not give me what I earn. And then when I look at all of the blessings that I didn't earn, and all of the good things I've been given because He's good, not because I am. Oh man, I am, I am amazed at the goodness, the grace and the mercy of Almighty God. I am, I am free to just enjoy Him. To enjoy everything He has given me. Every blessing He has poured out upon me. To have a real relationship with Him that's not about me doing enough to make Him bless me. But just enjoying who He is and what He does. And experiencing the many, many good things He pours out. Upon my life. If we are trying to be good enough. And we think God owes us. We will never enjoy our relationship with God. There will always be doubt. Always be wondering if we're good enough. But when we accept that we aren't. We never will be. And that God's every action toward us. Is a gift of His mercy and grace. Our love for Him, it blossoms. Our ability to enjoy Him, it blossoms. Frees me to enjoy a relationship with God. Secondly, I'm free to have hope. Free to have hope. There's not a lot of hope in a performance-based religion. You do your do's. You resist your don'ts. And then bad things happen. What do you do at that point? I mean, how do you fix it? What can you do? You, you, you did your dues. You resisted your don'ts. Apparently, nothing you do matters. Apparently, you'll never be good enough. Apparently, God just doesn't care about you like He cares about others. There's not any hope in that. When the hard times come, it is crushing. But when I understand that 
that God's every action towards me is a gift of his mercy and grace. Well, then there is hope. When Jeremiah wrote this, Jerusalem had just been destroyed. They had been conquered. The city had been raised. The temple had been destroyed. The people were about to be taken away into captivity, scattered abroad. And yet in the midst of all of this, Jeremiah has hope. His hope is because he knows the Lord's mercies are the reason they're not consumed. Why weren't they all destroyed? Why weren't they completely killed out? Why weren't they wiped from the face of the earth? Because God. God was there. God was at work. God was protecting. God was saving. God was working. God's sovereign. God is always at work. We have an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy in every way in our lives. Why has he not done that? Why have we not suffered more? Why have we not been completely decimated? It's because of the Lord's mercies that we have not been consumed. Because the sovereign God is here. And He's at work. And He cares. And He's there. He also recalls that, that God is, His mercies are made new every morning. Now that's a good thought. His mercies are made new every morning. We don't run out of God's grace and God's mercy. We, we don't run beyond what God can do. Whether we do our do's or we don't do our don'ts. The Bible says that, that His grace is greater than our sin. We, we never run out of mercy. God never gets to the end and says to it, Well, that's, I'm sorry, that's as far as I go in with you, bud. You're, I hope you can straighten up and fly right from this point. I hope you can take care of it and you better do all your do's and not do your don'ts because I'm done with you at this point. Every day is a new day. Mercies are made new every single day. The final reason that Jeremiah has hope is because God is faithful. God is 100% faithful 100% of the time. Do you even know anybody like that? You don't. You know why? Because no matter how faithful someone might want to be, there are circumstances beyond their control that can keep them from keeping their word. They can get sick. Something can come up and that can prevent them from being able to do what they said they would do. That never happens to God. Circumstances are never beyond his control. He never changes his mind. If God has said it, he will do it 100% of the time. Nothing will ever prevent God from being able to do what he has said he would do. So when I know that God's mercies are made new and that God's every action toward me is a gift of his grace and his mercy, then it doesn't matter what comes into my life. I can have hope. Because there is more mercy. There is a faithful God. There is a, a sovereign God who is at work on my behalf. And the God who blessed me in the past hasn't changed. 
The God that was good yesterday is a God that is good today. And He'll be good tomorrow. He hasn't changed His mind. He doesn't change His promises. He is and He will do all that He has said. So even in the midst of great trials and great tribulation, there is hope if I know that God's every action toward me is a gift of His mercy and His grace. This morning, if you believe that God owes you, you are believing a myth. And there will come a time when that myth makes you miserable. And it will make you miserable to the point that it destroys your faith if you don't let it go and embrace the truth that will set you free. God's every action towards you towards me it's always a gift of his mercy and grace the God that was good and gracious and merciful yesterday will be good and gracious and merciful today and tomorrow and for all of eternity and that can free you to have a genuine relationship with him better than anything you've ever had that can free you to have hope regardless of what's going on in your life right now or what will come. But you must choose to let go of the myth. And embrace the truth. So that it will set you free. Let's stand as our.